Welcome back to Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This is episode 12, which will be focused on Lithuania and specifically on its capital of Vilna, also known as Vilnius. And this episode will have basically three parts. One is completing the introduction, which I began in episode 11. Two is talking about some of the particularities of Lithuanian history as opposed to the history of the Baltic states in general. And three, we'll be talking about Lithuanian Jewry and particularly the world of the Litvaks. You will remember that we, several episodes ago, when we focused on Lviv, we talked about the world of the Galicianers, which is centered maybe 500 miles or so south of Vilnius. And you may also recall that at the time I said the Yiddish-speaking world is divided between Litvaks in the north and Galicianers in the south. So too are lots of features of daily life, like how do you make a filter fish? In the south, the Galicianers make it sweet because they have a lot of sugar beets. In the north, the Litvaks make it salty because they don't have as much sugar, but they're in the habit of pickling a lot of things and preserving a lot of things with salt. So I may have caused more confusion than I dispelled in episode 11 when I tried introducing the Baltic states as a regional concept. Uh, geographically, they are clearly one region with Estonia to the north Latvia in the middle, Lithuania to the south. At one point, the term Baltic states also included Finland, which is north, and East Prussia, which is south. But ultimately, those countries had very different histories, whereas the three Baltic republics had largely similar histories. However, it's only a geographical term because culturally, religiously, and historically, the three countries are quite different from one another. Estonia and Latvia, by virtue of their history and by a closer association with Germany, starting way back with the Order of the Teutonic Knights and then the Hanseatic League and then lots of German settlers, those countries ultimately became majority Lutheran, Protestant, and Lithuania, by contrast, had a much closer association with Poland. In fact, for a long time, there was a Lithuanian-Polish commonwealth that was the biggest country in Europe, and that commonwealth was Roman Catholic. Also, the Lithuanians and Latvians speak Baltic languages. If you look on the Indo-European family tree of languages, you will see that they have their own branch, whereas Estonian is a Finnic language, closely related to Finnish and somewhat more distantly related to Hungarian. Today, all three of these countries are members of the European Union, members of NATO, and members of the Eurozone. They have a high development index and are characterized by the World Bank as high-income countries. So during the 14th and 15th centuries, the three countries had similar histories. They were all tied to one degree or another to the Hanseatic League, and they were all targets to one degree or another of the Northern Crusades that I described in some detail. By the end of that period, their 
histories started to diverge, in part because the interior and eastern parts of Lithuania, particularly in the forest, remained pagan until probably the end of the 1500s, whereas the other countries were thoroughly Christianized. And then each country was affected differently by the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation and the wars generated by those movements. As the Russian Empire expanded in the 18th century, the territories of Estonia and Latvia were added, to use a gentle term, to the Russian Empire at the end of the Great Northern War in 1721, while the territory of Lithuania only came under Russian rule after the third and final partition of Poland in 1795. From 1795, all three Baltic states were ruled by the Russian Empire until the end of World War I, when Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania gained sovereignty and independent national identities. They remained independent until the occupation and annexation by the Soviet Union, and very briefly by Nazi Germany, during World War II. During the period from 1940 until 1990, those three countries had an interesting and anomalous status in terms of U.S. foreign policy and diplomatic relationships. We and most other Western countries never recognized the legitimacy of the Russian occupation, or particularly the Soviet occupation, of these countries. And they all maintained diplomatic establishments in Washington, even though they had no government to report to in their capitals. These were sort of governments in exile. It was a very interesting departure in terms of foreign policy, because normally the U.S. has a policy of recognizing countries, not governments. In this case, we recognized the countries, but acknowledged that there were no governments in Tallinn or Riga or Vilnius. So we treated the heads of those diplomatic establishments in Washington as if they were representing real countries, whereas in fact they were representing countries that we considered to be illegally occupied by the Soviet Union. In the late 1980s, when Gorbachev was governing the Soviet Union, there was something called the Singing Revolution, which began in the Baltic Republics. On August 23, 1989, a two-million-person human chain stretched for 600 kilometers from Tallinn to Vilnius as part of this campaign for independence. Gorbachev's government had privately concluded that the freedom of the Baltic Republics had become inevitable, and this conclusion contributed to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, setting a precedent for other Soviet republics to secede from the USSR. Although most of the other republics did so without firing any shots, there were shots fired and people who died in the Baltic states, and this created even more resentment against the Soviets than there had been. Nominally, the independence of these three states was recognized by the former Soviet Union on September 6, 1991. Soviet troops were withdrawn from the region starting in 1993. The last troops were withdrawn in August of 94, and the last Russian military radar installation in the Baltics 
stopped operations in August of 1998. Now, rather than burying you in details of early Lithuanian history, let me just say that the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, which came into existence in the 13th century, had during its first two centuries of life several extraordinary rulers. Mindaugas was a key one, also Gediminas and Vitautas. These rulers eventually, in spite of an ambivalent relationship with Christianity and in spite of much of the country remaining pagan, formed an efficient enough state that they ruled territory from the Black Sea to the Baltic and much of what is today Ukraine and Belarus were under the rule of the Lithuanian state or the Grand Duchy. And at one point even, this small non-Christian country was strong enough to besiege Moscow, which itself was a fortress. The famous Kremlin is a giant fort. They didn't take it, but they posed a serious threat. Then they formed a dynastic union with Poland through marriage around the first part of the 15th century. And they moved slowly towards a more and more integrated union with Poland until there was a treaty that formed a Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth officially in 1569, which was successful enough that it lasted until 1795, when Poland basically disappeared from the map, although significantly, Lithuania did not. During the so-called Lithuanian Renaissance, Vilnius emerged as one of the most beautiful and impressive capitals of all Europe, culturally very rich, boasting one of the oldest universities in the northeast corner of Europe, and hosting eventually a very significant Jewish community, which we will now examine in more detail. But before turning to the specifically Jewish history of Vilnius, I would be remiss if I failed to mention one of the great landmarks in Vilnius, which happens to be a church in the old town. The first church at this site was built for Anna, the Grand Duchess of Lithuania, and the first wife of Vitautas the Great. It was built of wood, and it was destroyed by a fire in 1419. The present church on that site, which is made of brick, was constructed at the end of that century by the King of Poland and the Grand Duke of Lithuania from 1495 to 1500. This church is so beautiful that according to a well-known legend, Napoleon, when he led his troops through Vilnius on the way to Moscow during the Franco-Russian Wars in 1812, expressed the wish that he could carry the church home with him in the palm of his hand. Now, this is a man who saw many churches in his life, including Notre Dame in Paris, but he just fell in love with this St. Anne's Church. And if you ever get a chance to see it, from the outside, you'll certainly understand why. Okay, so as with everything that happened long ago, the origin of the Jewish community of Lithuania is a subject shrouded in mystery. There's lots of speculation, lots of theories, but the first reliable written document attesting to the presence of Jews in Lithuania was a charter 
granted by the Grand Duchy to the Jews of Trakai, the Jewish community of Trakai, which is still a significant town in Lithuania. And that charter dates back to 1388. So it's a safe guess that there were Jews there for at least a century or two before then. But we know that in 1388, there was an organized community in Trakai that got a written charter granting them certain privileges and rights. Later, similar privileges were granted to the Jewish communities of Brest, Grodno, Lutsk, and many others. Now, you may notice, if you're familiar with the area, that Brest and Grodno are today in Belarus, not in what is today Lithuania. But as I've indicated before, boundaries shift over the centuries, and Lithuania was once far, far larger than it is today. Roughly a 100 years after the issuing of these charters, in April of 1495, a mysterious decree was promulgated which expelled all the Jews from Lithuanian proper and all adjacent territories. They were ordered to leave the country, and they weren't given enough time to sell anything or convert their assets, so they became a group of very poor exiles, mostly settling in Poland just over the border. They were taken care of by the Polish king because of their extreme poverty and on account of the great losses sustained by them. They were allowed equally mysteriously, to return to Lithuania in 1503. And since that time, there were never any major expulsions. In 1566, echoing almost word for word a papal decree that took effect in 1215, there was a declaration against the Jews of Lithuania specifying that they shall not wear costly clothing nor gold chains, nor shall their wives wear gold or silver ornaments. The Jews shall not have silver mountings on their sabers or daggers. They shall be distinguished by characteristic clothes. They shall wear yellow caps and their wives kerchiefs of yellow linen, in order that all may be enabled to distinguish Jews from Christians. Close quote. Now, you'll note this yellow echoes the papal bull of the 13th century and foreshadows the yellow star that the Nazis made Jews wear. But in spite of this decree, things rapidly got better for the Jews in Lithuania, so that by 1792, the Jewish population in the country was estimated at 250,000, compared with less than half that in 1569. Almost all of the commerce and the industries of Lithuania were in the hands of the Jews. Starting in the 16th century, the founding of yeshivot, or Jewish religious schools, in Lithuania really took off, and there were a number of prominent rabbis leading these yeshivot, or yeshivas, who died in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the rabbis were so learned that secular authorities deferred to them on many questions of law, science, philosophy, etc., etc. However, and this is a probably an oversimplification or an exaggeration or whatever, but it's to make a point. Generally speaking, the Litvaks, Lithuanian Jews, were harsher and less likely to be friendly to Hasidism 
than the Galitianers. Now, for those of you who don't know what Hasidism is or who think of Hasidim as the people with black hats and funny hairstyles, that's true. But when Hasidism first emerged, it was a way of making Jewish religious practice more joyful, more singing, more dancing, more smiling, more laughing, warmer and fuzzier. And somehow many of these qualities came to be associated more with the Galicianers than with the Litvaks. Probably the most famous Jew who ever lived in Lithuania was the so-called Vilna Gaon, the genius of Vilna, whose real name was Elijah ben Solomon, and who lived from 1720 to 1797. His style of Torah study and Talmud study shaped the analytical sort of Litvak style still practiced in most yeshivas. The yeshiva movement itself is a typical Lithuanian development initiated by the main disciple of the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Chaim Volozhin. So the early opponents of Hasidic Judaism were called misnagdim, those who are opposed. And they were led by the Vilna Gaon, who sharply denounced the innovations made by the Hasidim. In spite of that, there were several prominent Hasidic scholars and dynasties who originated in Lithuania, just not as many as there were in Galicia. Let's go back to the size of the Jewish community for a minute. I told you earlier that in 1792, there were 250,000 Jews in Lithuania. It is a sign that you can interpret however you want, that by 1939, on the eve of World War II, there were only 263,000 Jews in Lithuania, which is a tiny increase in a period of almost 150 years. The Soviets occupied Lithuania in June of 1940, quite near the beginning of the war. And one year later, in June of 41, the Germans moved in and succeeded in destroying roughly 95% of Lithuania's Jewish population. This was the highest casualty rate of Jews in any nation of the Holocaust. I mention this in two different contexts. One is a personal travel experience. On one of my earliest trips to the former Soviet Union, back in the early 70s, in the Brezhnev days, I had the privilege of leading a group of Jewish students, high school students, who were on their way to a summer in Israel, and they were all affiliated with the Camp Ramah movement. And we went to the main and only functioning synagogue in Vilna, which was the famous Choral Synagogue, which has since been renovated and then shuddered for fear of anti-Semitism, resurgent anti-Semitism. But when we were there, there was a congregation limited to a handful of old men who hadn't seen a minion, which is the Jewish prayer quorum, in many, many months. And they were thrilled by these young people who could participate fully and lead the services and read from the Torah and all that. And one kid who was with us still remembers having had an aliyah there and what a great honor it was for him. What I remember is that in the back of the synagogue, there were bookshelves overflowing with books. I mean, the books were stacked everywhere. And I didn't know at the time, but these were books that were saved by very heroic Jews during the Holocaust. What's the story? So the backstory is that the Nazis always had in mind to build back in Germany after their expected victory in World War II, a museum to an extinct civilization, namely the Jews. 
and they looted Jewish sacred objects, books, Torah scrolls, etc., etc., from synagogues all over Central and Eastern Europe. Very famously, they did this in Prague, and all those objects now constitute the famous Jewish Museum of Prague. But they also collected an enormous number of manuscripts and other printed matter from Vilnius and surroundings. And then they collected a very select group of scholars who were supposed to assess the value of each of these writings. The Nazis obviously didn't read Hebrew or Yiddish, and they had no idea what was what. So they took these guys out of the ghetto every day, and they spent their day, 8, 10, 12 hours a day, working through this enormous repository of Jewish literature. Well, these guys were heroes, because when they returned to the ghetto at night, each one would smuggle one or two books home every single day. And they buried these in a secret place inside the ghetto. And one of these men actually survived the war, came back to Vilna, dug them up, and kept them in the back of the synagogue. So when these old men turned to my kids, teenagers, and said, take whatever you want, we're dying out, there's no future here, everybody took at least one book, either a volume of Shulchan Aruch, or a prayer book, or a Chumash, whatever they took, they took, but we had no idea how these books managed to survive the war until I just read something the other day from the World Jewish Congress. Amazing story. And just to underscore the fact that you can never tar everybody with the same brush, I have to tell you that on my most recent visit to Vilnius, we had a local guide whose family has been recognized multiple times, nine members of her family, by Yad Vashem as being righteous among the Gentiles for their role in saving Jewish lives during World War II. And when we went to certain spots, like the gravesite of the Vilna Gaon, this woman said, if you want to say Kaddish, I hope you'll permit me to join you. And she knew she was not Jewish, but she knew the words to Kaddish. And it was an extremely moving experience. So why did I say there was a resurgence of anti-Semitism in Lithuania today? It has to do with Lithuania's internal reckoning of what people did during the wars. Were they collaborators with the Nazis who can be painted as heroic resistance to the Soviets? Or were they Soviet stooges who preferred the Soviets and resisted what some Lithuanians saw as liberation by the Nazis? There's all kinds of ways to view and argue this history. And Lithuania is in the middle of a socio-cultural reckoning with its own past and its role during the Holocaust. I look forward to our next get-together and hope it will be soon.